I love to tell the story. I was sitting here thinking about this past week. Brother Glenn and I were on Salt and Light, and uh, we were talking about a bunch of different things, but uh, I was sharing the story about how that um, my wife was talking to me about we had a bunch of uh, seeds from trees out on our driveway and out on our sidewalk and so forth, and I was just kind of joking about it, and my wife calls them those twirly things. And, uh, you know, I do know that those twirly things, that some of them, or maybe all of them, come from a maple tree. And I was just kind of conversationally saying, I don't know where they came from, because I didn't know, but what, maybe there aren't other twirly things. You know what I'm talking about, the helicopter seeds, and so they're all over our driveway, and we don't have any trees that produce those. And so I'm thinking, where do they come from, and so forth. We're just talking about that, small talk, yucking it up, having a good time, and so uh, it was kind of interesting you know, I got more response from on salt and light, people letting me know that those come from maple tree, than any other broadcast that we've ever had. And I was thinking about it, I love to tell the story. It's like we tell all kinds of good gospel things on salt and light, no response whatsoever, but I found out what the twirly things are. Praise the Lord. I do appreciate the response, though. And uh, I was thinking about... Sometimes I think in my ministry, nobody's going to remember anything that I taught or preached other than I don't like fruitcake, and then the heel of the bread story. I think that, um, I'm, you know, every preacher's got a, something that they're famous for. I'm famous for the heel of the bread story. If you don't know what that is, well, just stick around long enough. Just keep coming. One of these days, you'll hear all about it. But uh, anyhow, my wife showed me a cartoon the other day. And it's got uh, what looks like retired couple, and he's sitting in his lounge chair. He's got his newspaper up in front of uh, his face, and his wife standing beside and says, you said that you would love me the rest of your life. And he says, yeah, but I didn't know I was going to live this long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd get a kick out of it, because I sure did. Let's take our Bibles, go to the book of Judges, the book of Judges. Now, if you are fairly new around here, um, a visitor or fairly new, or if you're not sure if you are saved, I'm just going to just give you a heads up that today's message is not a gospel message. Today is a pastoral message in which I want to present some truths that I believe will help God's people. And so I don't want to be deficient in any way in not declaring the gospel because, like the men sang, I love to tell the old story of Jesus and his love. And so if you're lost today, please know right up front that what I'm getting ready to teach you today, uh, you can put it into perfect practice, but if you're lost without Jesus Christ, it won't do you a whole lot of good if you end up dying and going to hell. And so if you're not sure, if you're a sinner in need of the Savior, I want—I just want you to know right up front that Jesus loves you and He died on the cross for your sins. And you can be saved, you can be forgiven, and you can know that you have a home in heaven. So having said that, I want to talk to the saints of God here today and we'll begin reading in Judges chapter number 8 and verse number 22. It says that the men of Israel said unto Gideon, of course, I'm sure that most of you know the story of Gideon with the fleeces and going out against the Midianites and, and so forth. Uh, the men said to Gideon, rule thou over us, 
both thou and thy son and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. They're wanting to make him and his family king. They're wanting to turn Gideon into the royal family, if you will. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you that ye would give me every man the earrings of his prey. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Now, I hate to say it in today's culture, but historically speaking, uh, men wearing earrings was either a sign of a servant or it was the sign of a pagan nation, historically speaking. I better move on before I get in trouble. Amen? Verse number 25, And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold, beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were about their camels' necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof, and put it in his city, even in Ophrah, and all Israel, watch this, went thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. I want to speak this morning on the subject, when good things go bad. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be in church today. It's good to be with your people. What a joy it is to sing, Arise My Soul. What a joy it is to think about that haven of rest. What a joy it is to be able to tell that old, old story. But God, we've got a message here that I believe uh, can be a help to many, many people today. And I just pray that you would bless us and help us to speak it clearly. And Lord, not in any way through personality or deficiencies, Lord, limitations that we would take away from the message that you have for your people today. Bless, we pray. Open up hearts. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding that we may apply this truth and God, we might apply it correctly in our lives, and we just pray that you'd help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we all know that good things indeed go bad. If you'll notice here in verse number 27, this ephod that Gideon made, that the children of Israel went a-whoring after it. The entire concept of, I guess we would say, whoring, is the perverting of something that is good, wholesome, and pleasurable into something that is dirty, corrupt, and destructive. The entire concept of whoring really carries that meaning. The word whore and the word whoremonger are very common words in the Bible. They are harsh words. They are judgmental words. But notice how we don't hear these words very much in today's culture. I saw a news headline the other day about an, a celebrity with a quote-unquote open marriage. Our vice president refers to whores as sex workers and their trade, if you will, 
needing of being sanctioned by the government so that they can be protected. Hollywood calls whoremongers players, and yet the reality of it is, is it is no game. Interesting how that our culture today has softened all of the harsh words that God uses in stern warning. I mean, people today don't really recognize what God thinks of certain behavior because our culture has rejected God and His Word and has tried to scrub up sinful human behavior. But I don't care how we scrub it up in today's culture. The Bible says in Hebrews 13 and verse number 4, it says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So we're not going to get away from it. We're not going to sidestep it. We're not going to scrub it up. Listen, you can change the label of strychnine, but the substance is still poisonous and it is still harmful. Notice also that the word ephod shows up. And uh, the ephod was a very curious garment. It was a mysterious garment that was associated with religious priests historically. Uh, it is connected to divination with the Levitical priest garments, which contain both the breastplate and the Urim and the Thummim. These were the breastplate had stones representing the children of Israel, and then on the shoulders of that breastplate that was on the ephod, this priestly garment, you had Urim and Thummim, which is a mysterious thing, but it simply means lights and perfection. And I use the term divination because, you know, divination starts from the root word divine, meaning that that priestly garment and those stones were used to try to divine, to try to figure out what the deity wanted people to do. In pagan cultures, they would have an ephod and uh, they would use it to call upon their God and find out if they should go to battle or if they should stay home. All kinds of major decisions. They had the Urim and the Thummim. And then in, in the Levitical priesthood, the children of Israel could find the will of God by going to God's high priest who wore the ephod, who wore the breastplate and the Urim and the Thummim. And it was a very mysterious thing. Divination can be good or it can be bad. But I believe that in this particular case, it was meant to be good. If you'll recall, during the times of the judges, it was major dysfunction among the children of Israel. I mean, the priesthood was in disarray. The children of Israel were doing that which was right in their own eyes. They had done what much of Christianity has done today. They had taken pagan religion and God's religion and figured out a way to try to amalgamate them together. The book of Revelation talks about it as the doctrine of Balaam. And folks, it is prevalent in modern Christianity today. But I believe that Gideon... As we see here, Gideon said, I'm not going to rule over you. Gideon did not want to be their king. He wanted God to be their king. And, uh, you know, if, if you really think about Gideon's personality, and remember how that God would 
demonstrate miracles to Gideon to try to get Gideon to obey his will, to go out and to lead the children of Israel into battle. God you know, limited the numbers of men that would go out to war. Gideon still was unsure. If, you know, Gideon was a very unassuming man. He wasn't ambitious. He didn't want to be the king. He didn't want to be the leader. And, and he couldn't believe that God would call him because he even said that I'm the least of my father's house. Why, why would you call me God? And God gave him fleeces. And you know, uh, some people I've known have used fleeces to try to determine the will of God. But I want to submit to you here today that using a fleece is not an act of faith, but rather it is the lack of faith. If you really study Gideon's problem there is God told him specifically, made it clear, and it wasn't exactly what Gideon wanted to hear, and so he kept wanting to get that assurance to make sure. Sometimes we complicate what God is specifically, clearly telling us in His Word. I think that Gideon probably thought, look, they're looking to me for leadership. And even though I am not going to accept the responsibility of being their king and their ruler, I know they're going to come looking to me for judgment. And I personally believe that Gideon made this ephod because he knew that somehow, some way, he's going to have to be able to find God's will because people are going to be coming to him for direction and for guidance. And Gideon knew, hey, this is way above my head. One thing you got to say about Gideon, he wasn't full of pride, or excuse me, uh, ambitious pride. Regardless of what's going on here, the Israelites, we do know, turned this ephod into an idol. And they worshipped it. Or perhaps maybe they took that ephod and they began to use it uh, like a crystal ball. Like people today will go to a psychic. I don't know if you've ever seen some of these commercials on TV for California psychics and all of that. And you know what? Uh, Really, you have psychics in California on one end of the phone. And you know what you have on the other end of the phone? Suckers. Suckers call psychics. It's true. But the sad part is that Gideon... You know, Gideon made a mess of things, but I don't think he meant to. I think he meant it for something to be good, but it came, it became something very bad. You know, in the Christian life, every single one of us has what we call an Achilles heel. I mean, I don't care how powerful of a warrior, how powerful of a Christian that you are, we all have an Achilles heel. The term comes from Greek mythology. It was prophesied that Achilles would perish at a young age. His mother Thetis dipped him as a child in the river Styx, which was supposed to make him a powerful and invulnerable warrior. Remember, this is mythology, okay? This is a fairy tale. I'm just telling you where the term comes from. So his mother dipped Achilles in the river Styx, and that was supposed to make him a powerful and invulnerable warrior. When she dipped him in the river, she held him by his heel, which prevented the mystical waters from touching that part of his body. 
He eventually died in battle as a poison arrow shot by Paris in the Trojan War found its mark in the only spot of his body not washed in the river's water. Why? Because that's where his mother held him in the heel. You know, we call it an Achilles heel because we can be practically invulnerable. And I know some of you, most of you are probably like me. You think Achilles heel, I mean, that, that's singular. I wish that I was that powerful and that invulnerable. I feel way more vulnerable than that. Uh, sometimes I feel that the, the heel is the only place where I have protection. <laughs> but here's a true statement. This is not scripture, but this is a true statement. I didn't come up with it. I heard other men say it. I've watched and observed over the years, and I believe this statement to be 100% true. Everyone has a strength, and with every strength is a corresponding weakness. Now let me talk to you for just a moment about the subject of self-awareness. I believe self-awareness is essential uh, is, is a healthy essential to life, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and as far as that goes, even physically. In 2 Corinthians 13, and verse number 5, Paul said, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. And notice how he said, Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ be, is in you, except ye be reprobates. There is a healthy type of self-awareness. But as in everything in life, too much of a good thing will turn us into a fool. Solomon observed that in Proverbs 18 and verse number 2, when he said, A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. I remember, um, I remember a guy coming to our grade school um, when I was in grade school. <laughs> and he was promoting a judo class that he was uh, trying to get uh, elementary age kids to sign up for. And, you know, and I thought about this concept of when good things turn into bad things, I thought about the martial art of judo. Judo was invented and founded by a man named Jigoro Kano. I hope I'm saying it right. And uh, this, uh, this man was often harassed during his childhood. He was bullied, if you will, in 1860 until 1870. By taking a variety of martial arts basic skills, Kano added a throw technique to create judo. Judo, by the meaning of the word, means gentle way which means you use the opponent's force to combat against himself. I hope you understand that our adversary, Satan, is a master warrior who knows how to fight his battles. And I promise you, if you're not using your uh, weaknesses against yourself, Satan is going to come around. And uh, if you have a glaring weakness, he knows how to exploit it. He knows how to use it against yourself. Now, there's some examples in the Bible. I think about one of the early characters in the Bible 
uh, by the name of Noah. Noah was a great man, a great man of God, a preacher of righteousness. He was a man that was declared righteous by God, and he, praise the Lord, God used him to save him and his family and the entire human race. But I think if you really examine Noah's life, if you were living in his shoes, you'd probably have to say that Noah was accustomed to being alone. I mean, him and his family were the only ones righteous of all of civilization. They were the only ones. Sometimes we feel like that we're on an island and we're the only one. The Elijah syndrome, if you will. But listen, there are a lot of Christians in our nation. There are still many God-fearing, God-serving, God-honoring believers in America today. I think a a recent preacher, I can't remember if it was in this pulpit or elsewhere, but uh, you know, most of those type Christians are getting grayer and grayer and balder and balder. It's just the truth. It is such a rare thing to see a young person, a younger generation today, a person that truly has a sold out desire for God with biblical holiness and sanctification in their life. It's rare, but there are still many in this nation that are God-fearing, God-honoring. Don't believe Hollywood, don't believe the news media. There are still many that believe at least a worldview the way that we see it. Uh, There are still many in America. Noah was accustomed to being alone. In time, perhaps this caused him to become a loner. There's a difference between being alone and becoming a loner. Perhaps maybe Noah felt just a little bit entitled to a little bit of fun when he planted that vineyard and drank of the wine of that vineyard. I don't know of anything else recorded in Noah's life that we could say is a blemish, but it was a foolish act of self-indulgence and it cost him dearly. And it cost his family dearly, his grandchild dearly. I think about Abraham, such a peace-loving, quiet man. He was not aggressive, and at times he became very passive. His passivity caused him to twist the truth just a little bit. It caused him to delay his obedience when God called him uh, from Ur of the Chaldees, and he made a pit stop there in uh, um, um Turan? That that didn't sound right. But anyhow, sometimes his nature, which made him the friend of God, sometimes it would cause him to be just a little bit passive and a little bit too laid back. I think about a man that no one wanted the blessings of God more than Jacob. He was good at going after what he wanted. But because of that, he became unethical. He got what he wanted. But, Genesis 47, verse 9, at the end of his life, he's standing before Pharaoh and he says, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are in 130 years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been. He didn't have a happy life, even though everything that he desired, he got what he wanted. Moses was a man of meekness. In fact, God says of Moses that he was the meekest man on the entire earth. 
no one was better at meekness than Moses. But he was a man who bottled everything up inside. He put up with a lot. But when the lid came off, you didn't want to be around. If you were an Egyptian uh, soldier, uh, if you were the children of Israel around and a rock happened to be standing by and you had a rod in your hand, it just wasn't a good thing when the lid finally came off. A preacher once said, if God and Moses ever got in a killing mood at the same time, we'd all be dead. I mean, many times God wanted to kill them all and Moses would stand up and say, no, don't do it. Sometimes Moses would want to kill them all and God would say, no, we're not going to do that. Joshua was such a zealous follower of Moses. Man, every Moses wants to have a Joshua, the captain of the host, the the right-hand man, if you will. But with his eyes on Moses, he couldn't see the big picture. In Numbers chapter number 11, verse number 27, it says, There ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Enviest thou not for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Here Joshua, in his zeal to follow Moses, he couldn't see things through the eyes of Moses. He had a heart for Moses, but Moses had a heart for the people. And so sometimes that strength ends up becoming a corresponding weakness. As a side note, let me say this. It's a good thing to follow a man that is following Christ. But many a good man has been tripped up by Satan by emulating a Christian hero. Follow the man that follows Christ. Paul said it, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. But by all means, always make sure that who's out in front of you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And not a Christian hero. Psalm 118 verse number 8 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than than to put confidence in man. I think about King Saul, who appeared to be so humble. You remember... When, uh, when they were looking for him, as Saul had already anointed him to be king, and Israel said to Samuel, we want a king, and so they're casting lots and so forth, and, and so, excuse me, Saul had not been anointed yet, but they're casting lots, and, and the tribe of Benjamin's taken, and the family of Kish is taken, and then the lots cast, and, and Saul is taken, but they couldn't find Saul. Saul already knew that he was the man that was chosen, but the Bible says that he hid himself among the stuff. He's over there hiding while all of this is going on. Now you look at that and you think he appeared to be humble. But time would prove that Saul wasn't humble, he was just simply self-conscious. And oh, what a difference there is between humility and self-consciousness. Saul, when they started singing about him and started singing about David, he got a little bit perturbed when they ascribed 10,000 to David and only a 1,000 to him. He wasn't humble. He was just self-conscious. And by the way, self-consciousness is just a really... And for that matter, I'm going to preface it, most shyness. 
is just masked pride. Because when we're shy, we're self-conscious. All we're doing is we're thinking about ourselves. If you struggle with shyness, you know what you need to do? Start thinking about how you're making everybody else feel and quit worrying about how everybody else is making you feel. It sounds so simple, but all you got to do is just start doing that and all of a sudden you'll find you're not that shy anymore. It's a Christ-like way. You know, Christ, you you don't find anywhere in the Word of God, in the Gospels, where Jesus demonstrated self-consciousness. He was always worried about others, not himself. I think about David. David had the heart of a shepherd, but he often had to play the part of a warrior. His sacrifice for the sheep, I believe, gave him a sense of entitlement. When it was time for kings to go to battle, David in his older years is weary and tired of going out and fighting. Hey, he's got a shepherd's heart. He's a peaceable man. Yeah, he's been a warrior, but he's more comfortable sitting up on a hillside playing a harp looking over the sheep. That's his comfort zone. And I think he got weary of the battle and felt that he maybe had a sense of entitlement. Hey, I'll just stay home. I'll indulge myself. And you know what? He found himself at the wrong place at the wrong time. He saw Bathsheba and you know the rest of the story. It spiraled downward. And you know, because of that, he had to be at war the rest of his life. Isn't it interesting how God so carefully chose uh, the reaping of his sowing? Elijah lived with a burden for the nation of Israel. Because of that burden, he had great expectations. His expectation led to disappointment, and his disappointment led to depression. 1 Kings 19, verse number 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, (laughs) It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. You ever thought about that? And I know God was probably saying, we don't find that God said it, but I think he probably thought, Elijah, who told you you were supposed to be? I didn't call you as a prophet and say, go out there and be better than your dad. But Elijah had an expectation, and that expectation led to a disappointment, and the whole thing just, I mean, the burden that Elijah had for Israel, guess what? The good turned into something very bad. Peter was a man of courage and boldness. You cannot deny that. Courage, boldness. I mean, he's the one in the garden when the high priest soldier showed up. Who's the first one to draw the sword? It was Simon Peter. He's the one that chopped off Malchus' ear. I mean, he didn't didn't say, hey Lord, can I get him? No, he is a man of action and courage. And he was going to fight for his Lord. He was loyal and he was bold. No hesitation whatsoever. And yet, hours later, we find the same man denying the Lord vehemently when confronted by a little girl at the devil's fire. You know, you read in the, in the New Testament, and I'd have to say, at least outwardly, that the Apostle Paul had no weaknesses. But if you had a weakness, you probably wouldn't want to hang around him. 
Remember John Mark? Uh, Remember how Barnabas got in a fuss with Paul because Barnabas wanted to give Mark another chance and Paul's like, no way. (laughs) He wimped out. I'm not giving him another chance. So when I said Paul had no faults or weaknesses, I said that somewhat facetiously. Uh, Paul was a great man and great character and great spirituality and great consecration and so forth. But we notice, regardless of how you see that story, every single one of us have a corresponding weakness to our strengths. As I thought about this concept, there are many examples in the Christian world of this very thing. In the Christian world, there have been many good movements and by the way, in, in, in Christianity, you can trace this, that, you know, a movement starts with a man. And that man, as I've already said, turns into a movement. That movement turns into a machine, and that machine ultimately turns into a monument. That's the cycle of Christian leadership. That's why there are men and movements that become a machine, they become a monument, and next thing you know, they don't even exist anymore. Have you ever seen very many Bible schools that continue under the same vision of the founder of that Bible school? <laughs> you, you'll, you'll look far and wide to find a Christian school. In fact, I dare say that the founders of, pretty, of, of any Christian school that's been around for a second generation, you won't find very many that if the founder were to show up on campus today, he wouldn't have a heart attack. Or if he knew what was going on in the school that he founded, he would roll over in his grave. Why is that? Because it's a cycle. Man is not wise enough to recognize this cycle of man, movement, monument, machine, or machine, and then monument. Everything that is good, Satan is going to figure out a way to try to turn it into something that is bad. I'll focus on some of the movements that have taken place in Christian church history, particularly here in America. How about mass evangelism? You know, back in the 40s, and well, actually, you go back to the early parts of this country, there were men like Whitfield and Wesley, and then Moody and Billy Sunday and Mordecai Ham, and then in modern times, you had men like Evangelist Billy Graham and so forth. Mass evangelism in the United States of America has been a great thing from day one. But you know what has happened in modern times? You know what they do in typical mass evangelism meetings today? They have people trained that when the altar call is given, the invitation is opened up, and it doesn't matter what the Holy Spirit is doing, there is a mass response of people coming forward to the altar. But the ones that come up first are the ones that have been trained and have been prepared beforehand that when the invitation's given, you come forward. Some of those are altar workers. But many of them are Christian people that are already saved that just come down and pray and they create an atmosphere that, hey, that's what everybody's doing. And so people leave their stadium seat or the pew or whatever the building is and they all come down 
and they respond. Why? Because that's what it seems like so many others are doing. A good thing can become a bad thing. When God does something miraculous, all of a sudden now we expect that if the big, huge, miraculous thing is not taking place, then God must not be blessing it. Something good, and Satan figures out a way to turn it into bad. Likewise, you have the personal soul winning movement. This began back in the 50s and then the 60s where, listen, going out and knocking on doors and personally witnessing to people, that was unheard of practically in Christian history up until recent times. And it was a great movement in America. I guarantee you, untold thousands of people were born again because Christians got out there in the highway and hedges and knocked on doors and told people about Jesus Christ. But you know what happened to that movement is times in America changed. Brother Runyon used to say this when I was a young preacher boy. He said it even more in his older age. He said, Brother Randy... He said, there was a day when there was conviction upon this land. But that conviction is not on this land anymore. Back in the day, you could knock on someone's door and you could say, can I tell you about Jesus Christ? And they'd say yes, not to just appease you so that they could get rid of you. There was conviction upon the land. There was a fear of God. And people were truly under conviction. And they wanted someone. They wanted a preacher. They wanted a Christian to whom they had confidence in to tell them how to be saved. They didn't know. And once they heard the gospel, so many people said, it's that simple, I can't believe it. And they'd get on their living room floor and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And many, many well-meaning soul winners would go out and they'd come back and give encouraging reports of how many people got saved. And all of a sudden, churches that were just little bitty churches started to grow and become successful building buildings and being known throughout the country. And guess what happened? You know what happened. People started trying to emulate that and manufacture that. And in comes this easy believism. Hey, get somebody to pray a prayer and then just move on and tell them that they're saved. Folks, that is deceit, that is deceiving. That's probably 90% of the problem in Christianity today is churches are filled with unregenerate members. People teaching Sunday school classes and serving on deacon's board and even preaching behind the pulpit that have never legitimately been born again. I said a prayer. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, good for you. The devils also believe and tremble. Hey, how about the KJV movement? Hey, I'm part of the KJV movement. I thank God that as a teenager that I found out that there was an issue about the Word of God. I didn't know when I was younger. I didn't know. I knew there was all kinds of different Bible versions. I'd hear preachers talk about it and say, well, I like what this version says. But I didn't know that there was anyone out there that was actually perfect. Now, thank God, even as a child, I always had a King James Bible. 
My oldest sister brought home a Bible. She was going to a youth group at the Nazarene Church, and she brought home this Bible called the Living. It was called the Way. It was the Living Bible. And I remember looking at it, and it just on the the front of it, it just kind of looked a little bit hippie looking. And and I remember as a boy, I was kind of intrigued by it, and I would read it. But even then, I just thought this just doesn't ring right. And as I got a little bit older, I found out that there is a difference. And you know what, really, before I even knew anything about manuscript evidence, as a teen, I wasn't even right with God, but I will say this, I recognized a difference. People that adamantly believe this book, it's like, wow, they really seem to mean business about their Christianity. And I didn't know it at the time, but there was some proof in the pudding. And I started thinking that, hey, maybe there's something to this. Now, when I got right with God, and I started learning and comparing the difference between the versions, I thought, wow, this is a no-brainer. But I thank God for the KJV movement. But I've also seen many good men and good Christians become, to be quite honest, jerks about it. I mean, where you have more testosterone than you have Christianity. Where you don't really see the truth of the Word of God, you see the testosterone and this aggressive, it's just like, bless God, if you don't have the right Bible, you're going to hell. I'm not exaggerating. And it's sad. Hey, a good thing can be turned into a bad thing. Hey, how about emphasis on doctrine? I think doctrine's a great thing. And you know, in all of this, let me just say this, and I I don't have it in my notes, but you know, there are different ministries that have different strengths than other ministries. One ministry may be stronger in the soul winning. Others may be stronger in the doctrine. But listen, the Christian life is not about being strong in one area at the expense of other areas. The soul winning crowd, they don't want to have anything to do with doctrine because doctrine is, I mean, it's just, you can't major in Bible doctrine and spend all of your energy going out knocking on doors. It takes time to study. It takes energy to, to teach the Word of God doctrinally to a flock. Doctrine is a great thing. But how many times have I seen ministries that were strong in doctrine become this emphasis that the things that are being taught are really more to impress people than to edify people? A good thing becomes a bad thing. How about holiness? Hey, I'm all for holiness. I think every Christian should be sanctified. I think that you should dress in a godly manner. I believe that your entertainment choices should be godly. I believe that uh, your music should be godly. I believe that your friendships and associations should be KJV approved. But I also know many, many believers that have no Christian grace in their heart. I mean, they're angry at the world, but they dress right. Some of the biggest gossips I've ever known would never think about wearing a pair of britches. 
And we could go on and on and on. Man or woman, boy or girl, holiness is something that's very good. But can, it can also turn into legalism. How about the subject of worship? You know, that's the modern one today. That's the big one. Worship is important. Worship is a vital part of the Christian life. But when you think of worship in the modern church today, the average person sitting in a pew today, guess what pops into the mind? Music. You ought to study that for yourself in the Word of God. You will find that music has a value and that music is sometimes, I'm not even going to say frequently, because that's not even true. It is sometimes connected when worship is going on, but 90% of the time, do you know what worship is in the Bible? It's this right here. It is bowing before God in humility and reverence and adoration. It ain't this. You know what that is, don't you? It's emotions. And it can be praise. It can be rejoicing. There's nothing wrong with emotions. But you know, some of the old-time Christians that... I mean, to them, God didn't show up unless we had an emotional outbreak. I hate to say it, but that created the appetite for emotions in a church service. And so, all of a sudden, as the music and style of our generation started changing, then people had to change their music in order to create the same emotion. How often do we see that music in church is really only about 10 or 15, maybe 20 years behind in the music of the culture? That emotion becomes an addiction or an assumption that, hey, if I, if I cried or if I shouted or if I felt something emotionally, then that must have been the Holy Ghost. Maybe. Maybe not. But something good, Satan can turn it into something very, very bad. How about an emphasis on family? Hey, I'm all for family. I think that there should be an emphasis on family. And I believe that in the movement of the soul winning movement, especially among independent Baptists, that, you know, back when the 80s hit and focus on the family with James Dobson, that became such a popular thing instantly. Why? Because there was a craving for that. People were getting, get busy for God, go soul winning, but their families were falling apart. And I believe that there should be a focus on the family, but I've also seen families that get a hold of that truth and they become cloistered. Or they come to church and they wouldn't dare put their children under the authority of a Sunday school teacher or, God forbid, a pastor... And then they give you all this nonsense like you've taken the mark of the beast if you have a nursery. For the record, that's stupidity. 
Now, listen, if a church doesn't have a nursery, doesn't want to have a nursery, praise the Lord, more power to you. Do you know what I think when these families come in and start telling me how I had to run my ministry and it's on their first visit? I think, what do you think I am, stupid? Oh, I see. You showed up. You honored us with your presence for 40 minutes and you know more about us than we know. I think that the, the word stupidity is pretty appropriate. How about missions? Missions is a great thing. It's a commission. It's a command that we go into all the world and preach the gospel. But you know that I've seen an overemphasis on missions at times to where people presume that God wants them to do something that God doesn't want them to do and they become pressure-led rather than spirit-led. Something good turning into something bad. And you know, every one of these points really could be a message. I'm really close to the conclusion, but I threw this in here for free. It's not on the PowerPoint, but it's worth talking about. Hey, we all have different personalities and temperaments, do we not? We're all different. There are good personality traits. You may be a detail person. You're a detail person and you pay attention to quality. But on the bad side, you can become a perfectionist. Hey, the detail person has quality, the perfectionist has insanity. (laughs) Why? Because nothing's ever perfect. Hey, you may be a hard worker, but you can become a workaholic. You may be patient, but you can become passive. You may be analytical, but you can become unstable. You may have a spirit of excellence, and that can turn into a spirit of criticism. You may be content, and that can become laziness. You may be aggressive, (laughs) and there's going to be times when you're going to be insensitive. You may be compassionate toward others, and then turn around and be hypersensitive about your own feelings. You may be merciful, which is a good thing, but that can easily make you have a bleeding heart for everyone, (laughs) including the devil. You may be motivated, but that can turn into being selfishly ambitious. You may be a pleaser. God God bless people who want to please, but you know, if you're a pleaser, you get around the wrong people and you want to please them, and guess what? Something very good becomes something very bad. I guess I'd have to say that much of it, maybe not all of it, but much of it comes down to motive. Good things with bad motives always become bad things. We should strive for holiness and perfection, but not for the sake of perfection, but for the sake of the glory of God. Romans 7, verse number 21, Paul said, I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. What do I do, preacher? How do I, how do I ensure that the good in my life doesn't turn bad? That's a great question. And you ought to be asking it right now because it is that easy for the good in our life 
to become bad. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, the, the, the word Ecclesiastes means the preacher. And it can be a very confusing book. I'd be real careful that I don't hang too many strong doctrines uh, out of the book of Ecclesiastes because some of it is just simply Solomon speaking as the man under the sun. It's viewing life in the here and the now. And as he said repeatedly, that can be vanity and vexation of spirit. Uh, I, I would strongly admonish uh, those of, that are part of the Seventh-day Adventist movement to reconsider their use of the book of Ecclesiastes when it comes to the teaching of soul sleep. But that's another message for another time. The book basically demonstrates that everything we attempt to do that is good is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon sought for perfection. He sought for perfect understanding. And you know what? He got what he wanted. But I don't think he wanted what he got. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 1.18, Solomon said, For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Solomon knew what he was talking about. In a very little way, as a pastor, I would have to say, I see what he's talking about. I've seen it for many years. Ecclesiastes 7, verse number 16, he said, Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Solomon's looking and everybody's saying, oh, I wish that I had your wisdom. And Solomon's like, what are you, crazy? You have no idea what goes with that. I think about Elijah and Elisha. Remember when Elisha, I mean, God's getting ready to call Elijah up into a whirlwind. Elijah's wanting to be there and Elijah keeps trying to give him the slip. And he can't give him the slip. And so finally, Elisha says, give me a double portion of your spirit. And you know what Elijah said? He said, you've asked a hard thing. Now it wasn't a hard thing because Elijah couldn't give it or that God wouldn't give it. I think Elijah was saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, the gift that God put upon Elijah led Elijah to the place where he's just like, God, just take my life. I don't want to live anymore. And he's looking at Elisha who says, let me have double. And he's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's toward the middle of your book, just past the book of Proverbs. If you find Psalms, then uh, Proverbs is right after that. Ecclesiastes is right after that. Find chapter number 12. me, look with me at verse number 8. The preacher says, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. 
The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my son, be admonished of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Verse number 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment, and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. As we think of the futility and of good things in our lives turning into bad things, I want to say this. Be strong. Be wise. Be aware. And be patient. Be patient with others. Be patient with yourself. No one achieves perfection. No one is the complete package. You have strengths that I don't have. I have strengths that you don't have. I have corresponding weaknesses that go with my strengths and so do you. None of us are the complete package. Be the man or woman that God has created you to be. Be the best you you can be. And when the worst comes out, learn from it. Get right with God and get back on track with God. Why? Because, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7-8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Beware, brothers and sisters, the good in our life can so easily turn to bad.